Hi, I'm Rahaf. And I'm Jay. And you're listening to Banterful. In this week's episode, we talk about sourdough, Facebook, and tech ethics. So stay tuned. Here's a question for you. Does anyone even use Facebook anymore? Like, I don't really. And what would you use it for if you were using it at all? This is what I'm saying. Like, I, I don't know. I go on Facebook once a day to do two things. I wish people happy birthday whose birthday is today. <laughs> and then I delete all of the posts that I made on this day in history. <laughs> That's actually amazing. That's all I do. I go on once a day in the morning and I am slowly wiping out my Facebook history one day at a time. They don't make it easy to do it in a batch way unless you just want to erase everything. And I kind of wanted to leave some things. So basically they have a memories today feature. So I go into the memories today feature every day and I delete all the non-work related posts that I made on this day in history. And then I wish people happy birthday. And then I log back off. That's, that is a that is a great idea. I'm really petty. So sometimes I will go in just to confirm my life choices uh, by looking in at what other people are doing and being like, nope, still good. Still good. Thanks. I mean, it's a motivational tool for sure, but I just don't, I'm, I just feel like, I feel like, and here's something we can talk about that Facebook has messed with a natural process that I call like social decay, which is the normal, very normal, very natural decay that happens over time with relationships that were never meant to last for so long. So like that dude you met at a conference that one time or a person that you went to grade four with that you haven't spoken to in 40 years or whatever. It's like those relationships were never meant to last. And I would argue they just end up clogging the bandwidth that you have for like meaningful relationships now. And they made it artificial because they're preserved forever. The algorithm keeps serving them up to you. And then you're connected to people that honestly, you have no business being connected with ex-boyfriends and, you know, old colleagues. And some people you do want to be connected with, but I would argue that a lot of people you don't. You have no idea how many of your ex-boyfriends I'm connected to. (laughs) Well, that is the power of the social graph. Also, I'm sorry. weird thing. (laughs) <laughs> uh, so like, but this is the thing. And like, I feel like if they, they purged that out, cause at one point I logged in and I was like, I don't really care enough about all of these people. Do you care? It's just baby pictures. And now everyone's making sourdough as like the great sourdough quarantine of 2020. Like, I don't know if this is on your, your feeds or not, but if you are not making a sourdough starter, are you even quarantining? Because like, I'm I not, don't I am not. You are in the minority. My entire feed has become sourdough starters. And at one point you're like, do I need to see a person who I ran into at an event four years ago to see how her sourdough starter is doing? Is that really adding value to my life? So I guess the question is, Rav, has this confirmed your life choices? Have you started making sourdough? <laughs> totally unrelated. I have been making sourdough starter. Uh, but I will say that it, I thought you couldn't make, I thought you had to get a starter. I thought you couldn't make the starter. That was kind of the point. No, you could. No, no. So, okay, we should actually talk about sourdough starters for a second. You can make it, but a lot of people, it takes time and it like, it's a very hit. Like we, in our household, we've tried, we failed. It's been sort of like a, an ongoing process, but so you can make it, it just takes some time. But the whole thing is, is that you're, you get it from people. Like I read a story about a woman who got her sourdough starter from a friend who had been using the same sourdough starter in their family for like 90 right. years. Right. So 
that's cool. But I mean, you know, I was like, sure, why not? What else do we have to do right now? So um, we did it. And here's the thing. I would be interested in your sourdough starter. I would be interested in like my best friend's sourdough starter, but am I going to be interested in somebody who I honestly have not spoken to or interacted with or engaged with in any shape or form in 15 years? I think my takeaway from this is we should start a new social network that is really just dedicated to sharing sourdough starters. <laughs> dough book. Dough book. <laughs> sourdough book. Sourdough book. That's all it is. It's just sourdough. That's our micro sourdough starter recipes and or it sharing should be like a, no, not even Facebook. It should be like a Twitter clone. Cause all it is, is like still alive, not alive, yeah. still alive, right. not alive. Right. Like all right. it is. So I've noticed in, in, maybe this is related. I've noticed in my family that people are bartering for the exchange of food. Oh, my sister was like, Hey, I made too much of this dish for dinner. Does anybody want me to drop some off? And then my cousin said, Oh yeah, if you drop that off, I can give you some of this. And then there was like a, like basically a currency exchange negotiation between them. Like how many chickens is a lasagna worth? So, <laughs> you know, maybe that's part of this is part A, are we at the point of this quarantine where we're actually negotiating over foodstuffs? B, does somebody need to make a currency exchange platform for foodstuffs? Because, you know, someone, because we need some guidance here. How many chickens is anywhere? Really funny. I mean, I, I saw on Instagram, somebody posted a thing that said, everyone thought 2020 was going to be the most futuristic year. And then 2020 is like, I treated my neighbor a handkerchief for five oranges. And it's like, right. this is where we're at now. 2020, the year that we thought we would have like hoverboards and be living on Mars. We're just like locked up in our houses trading. Um, actually, my neighbor did bring us over uh, some eggs. Um recently from his chickens. So that was really nice. And we were, we were kind of bartering, but it would be really funny to see what the market price for. Right. Things. Right. Like we've lost the skill. We, you know, at, at some point in time in human history, it was all bartering anyway. So you kind of knew how many eggs was worth a uh, cabbage or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I guess, it, and then that's when you really start to see the economics in play, like what's worth more. I don't know if you guys, what I did read, and this is also true in France, but what I did read a New York Times article uh, that said that people are making so much bread that there is starting to become a shortage in terms of the available supply of flour and yeast in certain supermarkets and certain states. I know here in France, uh, it's taken us a while to, some of the supermarkets have not had it for a long time. So we have to like drive beyond our normal radius with our permission note to go get some. And so th these are the sort of like, not super problematic, but un like benign, unanticipated results of this whole thing that we're all living through now, which is really funny, which is, is there going to be like a weird flower shortage and should we maybe be investing in like wheat companies or something? Or like, I don't know. <laughs> buying, buying futures on the flower. Yeah. Market. Buy wheat. So I want to know, I want to know if your permission note specifically said sourdough. It did not, unfortunately. It, it did say essential services, like we have to go. And luckily, they finally digitized it because before uh, we had to write it out because we don't have a printer yet. And so now it's, it's now you put it in the this like little website and it generates a QR code because you're only supposed to be out for an hour. So um, the number, it says so, the start I mean, time. If you, if, if you had to go hunting for your flour and yeast, you could have been out for longer than an hour. 
I know it would have been really much like our ancestors. I would take the risk of going out, you know, to, to, to the unknown lands to come back with the bounty. Like that is the risk that our species uh, has made. Hunting and gathering. Hunting and gathering. <laughs> this is what's happening. This is what's happening right now. But to bring it back, back to the Stone Age with you, which is have we, are we over Facebook? Are you over Facebook? You and I, I think, probably started using social media at roughly the same time. I was, uh, I have a Twitter user number in the first thousand users of Twitter. Mm -hmm. So like really, really early. And at that time, it really was full of hope and excitement and about uniting people together and about bringing people closer. And I have friends who I met on Twitter. I would never have met them. They, they live in different parts of the world. Or even if they live in the same place as me, I still wouldn't have met them if it hadn't been for Twitter. There's a couple who live in um, actually in Canada now, but I connected two people I had met on Twitter together who ended up getting married and having a baby together. That was the, the hope of this, these platforms and this technology. And then I, I feel like it took a hard, I don't know if it's right or left turn. I guess left is usually the bad one, right? Left is, left is historically been the, the evil direction. It took a hard turn. It became the advertiser supported model that it is today. It, sold out for the interest of massive revenues and public companies and all those sorts of things. And, uh, and that's why I've wiped out most of my history because I, I don't think that the post that we made a decade ago in a completely different time when it was full of hope and it had a completely different role and function in our lives and in, in society. I don't think those posts stand up to the context of today. But I mean, I don't necessarily think that, our need to connect or or our ability to form communities using tools is replaced. Like just because we're not using Facebook because Facebook became like polluted, you know, and we ended up, the less value it had uh, in my life, the less I, time I spent on it and the more kind of damaging it became, the less inclined I was to spend time on it. But I think, you know, humans, the digital migration that's happening is we'll find more. Technology can always be used to connect people. Like I still, I went through a very big purge on my Twitter feed and really started focusing on, on building lists, lists of people that I genuinely cared about, who I was learning from, that I thought were fascinating and interesting. So for me, from an intentionality perspective, Twitter, and I did the same across social media, like I find my social media usage to be very, very rewarding to me because I have taken the time to be quite intentional of what I want to get out of it. I want to be connected. I want to be engaged. There are people who I do want to be updated. Please, I want to know what you have for breakfast. I want to know how your kids are doing. I want to know what you're doing on vacation. I'm interested. It's just at some point, and I narrowly missed this with Instagram because at one point my Instagram feed was like brands and influencers. And I was like, this is garbage. I don't need... Yeah these people like that I don't know. I'd rather keep it quite small and I'd rather kind of keep it to just like people that I genuinely care about. And so the problem is, is that you have these companies, Instagram being owned by Facebook, that they start tweaking the algorithm. And every time they tweak the algorithm, I like not to be overly dramatic, but I feel like it threatens the relationships that you're building on the platform anyway, because all of a sudden it decides we're not going to show you Jay's posts. Well, if I follow Jay, I want to see his posts. Like, why is it so complicated to just show me the people that I followed instead of just this bizarro algorithm that just like has you spending time? And maybe that's the answer. I'm sure from a design perspective, you can answer that, that it's just spending more time on the platform, but it's just like garbage time. The algorithms in, at some level are really to blame for a lot of this because you, if you 
try to optimize for certain behaviors, which end up being the ones that drive advertiser dollars, right? So time on site or eyeballs on site, that's your primary thing that you're selling to advertisers. So you end up amplifying the worst of human nature because it's the thing that gets us stuck in that endless cycle of scrolling through a list, right? Unfortunately, for whatever reason, good news doesn't engage us in the same way that feeling shitty does. It's a weird quirk of human nature, right? You, you know, you, you, if you're logging into Facebook and you're just like, Hey, I just want to check up on, on my friends. And I have five friends in my list who I really care about. And I kind of go through them and then I'm done. And I've spent whatever that is, 10 minutes. It's not enough advertiser time. But mm-hmm. if I get into a rage because my feed is full of people whose political views I disagree with, or I think are being stupid or who, um, who are posting things that are pissing me off, I will get sucked into that and the algorithm doesn't care, or at least historically the algorithms haven't cared that the reason I got sucked in was because I was angry. What they care about is they are optimizing for getting your eyeballs to spend longer time looking at ads. And you happen to look at ads for longer when they show you things that upset you or piss you off or make you feel bad about yourself than they do if they show you things that make you feel good. And so you end up there. There's a sort of classic thought experiment about um, about artificial intelligence and why it could potentially be dangerous. The thought experiment is you can start off with a really good premise. Let's create an artificial intelligence that will eliminate cancer so that nobody dies of cancer anymore. And so you you get the the AI starts you know thinking about how to do that, thinking about how to do that. And if you haven't given it any restrictions about what it's allowed to do, it eventually solves the problem by eliminating humans. Because if you eliminate all the humans, there's no more cancer in humans. So, you know, checkmark, solve the problem, right? And, and that's kind of, obviously not as extreme, but it's kind of what we've done with these algorithms. We said optimize for getting people to spend longer on the site. And what we've resulted in is a stream of things that make you feel bad about yourself, and upset you and make you post, you know, angry all caps comments, because that is actually the thing that engages you and keeps you on the site for long. And like the moral thing is really interesting because sometimes the, you know, for some of the research that I did, I looked into digital contagion. So, you know, they say like you pick up attitudes from your friends, you pick up like if some, if your friend's in a bad mood, there's a higher likelihood that you'll be in a bad mood. Um, The whole idea of misery loves company and the research that they they've done on this topic shows that the same contagion rules apply on digital. Meaning if you read enough angry posts, it will impact your mood. And Facebook themselves in a very, um, I would say ethically ambiguous study, if you remember, they messed with people's feeds and they said they've realized that that they could kind of manipulate how you felt if you felt happy or sad or angry. And I'm so surprised that this wasn't picked up more because they're able to justify ad dollars and revenue dollars, but they they have admitted that their algorithm enables them to, to manipulate your emotional state. And not only do they manipulate our opinions and our beliefs, which was scary enough with the Cambridge Analytica thing that happened, but I don't know. I just think like, it's so surprising to me that we're so okay with it, that we're like, yep, this research came out and yep, they can control what I think. And yep, they're going to tailor what I see in order to shift my worldviews. And yep, they're going to influence my behaviors. And it's just 
I really thought that people would be like, we're going to stop using it. And then, you know, nobody really did. Or at least the reason they stopped using it was because the olds started coming in and then all the young people kind of were like, bye grandma. And then we just sort of bounced out. But I don't know. There's a a really great TED talk from Carol. And I I don't know how to pronounce her last name. I may get it wrong, but Cadwallader, she was the uh, one of the journalists who broke the Cambridge Analytica story, uh, she spoke at TED last year, uh, and the, the talk is called Facebook's Role in Brexit and the Threat to Democracy. We'll link to it in the show notes. Um, she talked about, at for the Brexit election, she actually, she's Welsh, and she went back to a town in Wales and her, uh, to cover it. And the reason she had gone there is it was one of the strongest leave votes in the in the whole of the UK. And she was sent there to figure out why. And she had a really interesting experience of talking to people whose opinion on the topic had no actual connection to the the reality of the region. So she tells the story of how she drove in on this beautiful new highway and next to the highway was a big sign that said paid for by the EU. And then she gets to the town square and it's been completely redone since the last time she was there. There's this beautiful new athletic center. It's got a big sign outside that says paid for by the EU. And then she started doing man on the street interviews and she was literally standing in front of the sign that said paid for by the EU, interviewing people who were saying the EU has done absolutely nothing for us. Mm. And when she dug into it, what she discovered is that there had been a very aggressive Facebook ad campaign geo-targeted to this area talking about how the EU has done absolutely nothing for them and filled with lies about mm. about things like, like Brexit. Uh, she mentioned one particular example is that a lie that Turkey was going to join the EU and take everybody's jobs. And none of that was actually true, but that was part of the Leave campaign's aggressive ads, right? What obligation should Facebook have as a publisher to validate that the ads that are shown on the platform are actually legitimate, that they aren't filled with lies. I would argue that they have an obligation to do that and that the excuse that the volume of advertising is just so big that we can't possibly police this is actually a really lame cop-out excuse that if you wanna make that kind of money off of selling advertising, then you should have to solve for that problem. I think if you had a, a newspaper, and I don't know that comparing Facebook to newspapers is really sort of a fair thing, but let's just say for a moment, you had a newspaper, the New York Times, and the Times ran a full page ad in it saying, Turkey is going to join the EU and take all of your jobs there'd be a huge backlash and outcry because the Times would have published something that was factually incorrect and they would never have been allowed to get away with it. Now, Facebook would argue, well, the Times has way fewer advertisements, so it's okay for them to have to police them. But I don't think they should be allowed to get away with that kind of position, or at least that they should be allowed to get away with it and refuse to disclose any of the data about who paid for these ads and you know where the money was coming from and whether it was coming from Russians or whether it was coming from an actual leave campaign or, you know, all of those things play into this in a way that that makes it really difficult to understand who's actually poisoning the public discourse. And yeah, it it results in people abandoning the platform. But I think, and the, the people abandoning the platform in a way are actually better for society than the people who aren't abandoning the platform and who are staying there and who are getting whipped up into a fury about this or who are uh, 
uh, you know, in our last episode, we talked a little bit about confirmation bias who are like deep in this well of confirmation bias where everything they see on Facebook just makes them more sure that their position is right and getting more and more extreme because it's pushing them in that direction, but it's validating that push in that direction. So you're getting this bigger and bigger divide between people where they're no longer talking at all the same language. They've removed everybody from their feed who didn't agree with them. And now they're just getting deeper and deeper into this hate and into this bias and into uh, a view that isn't really grounded in reality anymore. That's really built on ads that were paid for by Russian intelligence services. I mean, I just never really understood the difficulty because it almost seems like they were trying to work the problem from the wrong end where they're like, well, there's so much advertising or we can't police every advertiser. Right. But like, if you flipped it, what if you said, you know, cause they're, I mean, I'm generalizing here, but their general algorithm is we're going to see what you like. And we're just going to give you more of that because if you see what you like, you're going to stay on the platform more. Right. And so right now the, the, the algorithmic diet is hundred percent of what you like. Versus if the algorithm just says, we are going to limit, you know, a certain view, whether, and they know the, the micro targeting levels, because whether or not the advertiser, it's, 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 whether or not it's advertiser A or advertiser B or advertiser Z, um, the, the reality is, is that they're going to have to, at some point target, you know, people's behaviors, regions, and political, you know, affiliations, those categories. So if you flip it on the other side and you say, okay, well, what you could do to the algorithm is you can say, we're going to create a diet breakdown where you're never going to get more than 30% of your information about this same issue in the same way from the same perspective. That if you, if we are targeting, you know, left-wing or right-wing people, if we are targeting people of this age, if we're targeting this specific thing, that we're going to limit the algorithm to do that. And we're in fact going to serve you because they're saying, again, they're working it backwards. They're saying we can't verify everything that's being posted. So fine have a list of partners that are verified, whether they're newspapers or, you know, things that we can all agree on and say, your diet is going to be 30% what you like, 20% actual verified things, you know, and then, and then do it that way. And then that way, whatever is happening, whatever is happening behind the funnel, the funnel gets to be the control point to do it. And I've never understood why they haven't had that approach before because they're, well, I know why, because money and lobbying and they don't want to do it, but it's coming to the point where sometimes I wonder, like, this is when we were talking about some, another thing we'll explore in a different podcast, which is like, do you have to be totally evil to be <laughs> like a billionaire at this point? But at what point do you just say, okay, the way we're earning this money and what we are doing to democracy and what we are doing here with the, the toxic information we're pumping into the internet is not worth it. And I don't know, like, I like to be optimistic. I think Facebook has in certain ways done a lot of good. I just think it's been hijacked because they refuse to step up and they refuse to say, we deliver news to billions of people and we're going to start creating information guidelines. Like you wouldn't let, like, you know, we have nutritional guidelines, we have seatbelts and cars, we have all sorts of things to keep people safe. And yet somehow we hold up our hands and we say, it's the internet, we can't. Because free speech. Right. Okay, so 30% right. free speech, 30% academic, 30%, whatever it is, whatever the breakdown. It would require government legislation to get there. You're absolutely right. Because otherwise, if you play the, the simple follow the money game, there's no reason for Facebook to do it. It would just limit their revenue from advertisers. And, and to his credit, Zuckerberg has said, we've actually become too big and too powerful. And we do need some 
legislation imposed because otherwise we can't sort of figure this out on their own. I think there's a part of the, the challenge that they have is a precedent setting problem, which is if you admit to being able to solve any part of this, you've created a precedent that says you could solve any other part the same way. And then you may have an obligation legally to do that. And part of this is all kind of rests on this, these so-called safe harbor protection laws, like the DMCA, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act in the US has a safe harbor provision in it that basically says, if I'm an internet service provider or I'm a website like Facebook, I can't be held responsible for the content that my users have posted, which means if people post terrible things like, um, like you know, child pornography or, or things like that, or, um, or if they post terrorists, information or if they post all kinds of bad things, then you can't hold me as a platform responsible for it because my users created that content. And the, the challenge that they have is the way those laws are constructed. If you take responsibility for really for any of those things, you actually now have to take responsibility for all of them. So you can no longer claim safe harbor. And so they can't actually legally because of the, of the restrictions on them, they can't solve one part of this problem without ending up responsible for solving all of them. So that's sort of part of the challenge. Part of the challenge, as you said, is revenue, you know, and, and then I think part of this is they are uh, determined in a way to avoid being labeled a news source, because once you admit that we are a source of news and information, then you have a whole different set of moral obligations or even potential legal obligations. If you're kind of an entertainment source or a social network source, you don't have the same restrictions and obligations on you. So the longer you can go without being labeled with that, the better it is for you. And the longer you can maintain safe harbor and not have to actually enforce any pieces of this. They do actually enforce some of these. There's been lots of articles covering the, uh, the armies of manual um, content verification services that they've outsourced to who spend their lives doing terrible things like just looking at pictures that were posted to make sure that they don't have, you know, sex material in them or, you know, whatever yeah. it may be, um, or abuse or violence or whatever. And, and the poor people who are paid minimum wage or pretty close to it to go through these for eight hour shifts at a time and end up with all kinds of PTSD because of everything that they've been exposed to, but they filtered it out and kept it off the platform. And I, I, and I think the challenge there is that content is very black and white. It, it's hard to make a case that says we should allow uh, violent imagery on the platform. So yes, we have to filter that. But political advertising that was paid for by another company, country that kind of fits into free speech, it's a bit of a gray area. So they can get away with that and, and you could just apply the same standard, right? They have solved the filter huge amounts of content problem for black and white areas, but they're trying not to solve it for gray areas. And that's so interesting because it's like, you're, you're absolutely right. Where do we, where do we go from here? Like, what is the, because what is the way forward? Is there even a way forward or is this just a byproduct of a digital revolution that nobody anticipated and eventually it will replace itself with something or other? Like what I'm noticing now is that many of these communities are one are moving to like private Facebook groups, so it's becoming a lot harder to to see what's what's been happening. Um, there was a couple of I think pro publica um, exposes about these large scale groups of like um, 
border enforcement officials and prison guards that, you know, you get enough people together and under, you know, and, and certain toxic behaviors tend to emerge by, by no means. So, I mean, all of these communities act that way, but these particular groups did. And then you think, okay, well, you know, I've been a part of a lot of Facebook groups that have brought me so much value and that have brought right. me connections and insights and learnings and support. Sourdough. So, yeah. It's obviously all the sourdough communities I'm a part of. Um, so I just think, let's get that bread. No, I'm just thinking that I, I don't want to close it all down. I just don't know. Right. I don't know if this just becomes the tax that we pay. And one of the things I'm researching now is, and tell me what you think about this idea, because it's, it's kind of, I'm still mulling it um, over. But I think that as human beings, we have been conditioned to interpret the world around us through narrative, right? And through story. So we hear all these legends, all these stories and these, you know, the, the, the hero's journey and all these things. And we, we've been taught to interpret these in a very binary way. You know, this is a story that says, this is what happens if you do good. And this is a story that says, this is what happened if you do bad. So we sort of have these two lenses through which we interpret our narrative world. And now with technology, all of a sudden, it's like that narrative is being disrupted because what's happening is both simultaneously really good and simultaneously really bad at the same time. And I just don't think we have the psychological or emotional capacity to process it because how can you point at a company that has done really good things and also really terrible things. And it's like in the same quarter, it's the same company, it's the same people that are doing equal amounts. I would say, let's be generous and say equal amounts of good, but also equal amounts of bad. And it's like, well, I just don't know if we can process that. And that's why I think so many people are having trouble relating to the technological reality that we live in right now. Yeah. Yeah. That, there's, yeah. I like that. I like the idea that it's hard to hold this all in your head at the same time. Like we've created such a complex world that it's really difficult to know how to look at a company like Facebook. Although I would guess that that's probably true for every big company in history. You look at something like GE, they were mm -hmm. doing lots of great things and furthering medical science and transportation and stuff. And then they were also doing some pretty terrible things. So, you know, it, that's probably true of, of any large group. And I actually, there's sort of, part of this is just kind of looking at fundamental human nature and maybe acknowledging some of the things we prefer not to acknowledge about that. I don't know if you've ever come across the Stanford prison experiment I learned about this in Psychology 101, my very first psych class in university, where they had got together a, a group of students and they designated, I think the proportion was roughly half of the students as prisoners and half as prison guards, and then sort of put, put them in a basement on campus and let this play out. And what they discovered is that just by doing that, you get terrible behavior on behalf of both groups because they've been told that they now have some degree of power over each other. And so we knew that way before there was an internet, way before any of the technology that we're talking about emerged. But we don't necessarily take that stuff into account when we're designing these systems. It's taken Twitter, and I would argue that they probably, that they haven't even really done anything about this. It's taken them their entire life as a platform to mm -hmm. actually deal with the abuse problems that exist on there. Have it's they, not that they- Have they, do, have they dealt well, with it? I, and I don't know that they have, right? And, and I don't, you know, I, I don't know that they- I, I think they've kind of taken the same uh, head in the sand approach that Facebook's taking mm -hmm. with advertising. Like, well, 
there's so much abuse. We just, you know, it's, it's overwhelming. We don't, we don't really know how to deal with it. And that's just, it's not true. The problem is that the abuse drives ad revenue. And so trying to solve it, you would, you would end up with less engagement on the platform and engagement. It's one of those feel good words. Like, yeah, we should drive engagement. Engagement sounds like a good thing. Everybody should have more engagement in their lives. And the problem is engagement in the case of most of these platforms translates directly to how many ads did you look at? So if we reduce engagement, we reduce the amount of time you look at ads. And if it turns out that controlling for abuse stops people from seeing so many ads, then it directly affects our bottom line. We have a fiduciary responsibility to our shareholders not to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also like it's it's almost like a, a it's a reflection at the complicated nature of us as human beings. Like we are also equally awesome and terrible in different respects. Right. Every person has their mix of good and bad. I just think we've never faced a mirror that reflected both of those states at the same time to us all the time. And so you're seeing like great acts of generosity on social media, great coordination of resources and and outpourings of kindness and, and gestures of, of caring communities. And then on the same hand, you're seeing like trolls and toxic behavior and the radicalization of certain belief sets. And I have a really hard time processing that. Like I always say, like the, the research I'm working on the subtitles, like everything is awesome. Everything is terrible. Right. And that's the reality that we live in. So maybe the bigger question that we should leave and talk about next time, the bigger question is how can we stand in a place or how can we process an informational reality where we are constantly faced with these two extreme narratives at the same time? And like, what does that look like in terms of how we teach people how to process information or use social media or build technology? Like, how do you build for that? And can you build for that? Can you design for that? Yeah, should there be a role for, um, I don't know if the right word is ethics, but should there be a role for an ethics designer on technology teams whose responsibility is to think through everything we know about the awesome and terrible parts of human nature and to come up with a way to do that, that, that supports the awesome parts and maybe not the terrible parts. And I think actually, I think you just coined the tagline for Banterville, equal parts awesome and terrible. Everything is awesome. Everything is terrible. That's exactly what it should be. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, but also the, it's the economic model problem. So even if you had an ethics designer on your tech team and you were designing a new social network and the ethics designer said, oh, we can't do that because that's going to result in trolls and we can't do this because it's going to result in abuse. And let's just say that that person had equal say on the team as you know, your, your user experience designer or your visual designer. At some point, you're going to be faced with a how are we going to make money at this business problem. And so the question is, how do you still make money? And, and this sort of gets into a topic I know that we, we've been kind of throwing back and forth, but part of this is a question also of valuation of technology companies. How do you get a valuation model and a revenue model that isn't predicated on something like advertising eyeballs or that is predicated on that plus some other measure? There has, people have been talking probably since the beginning of Facebook, or at least since they started running ads, would you pay for an ad-free Facebook experiment experience, right? If I said to you, hey, listen, for 10 bucks a month or five bucks a month or whatever the number was, you can have an ad-free Facebook experience. And how many people would do that? And, and actually, what are you worth individually to Facebook as one user on the platform? And, and I don't know how many people would 
take them up on that as an opportunity and maybe enough that they could actually have a, almost a, you know, pro is probably the wrong word, but almost a pro version of it. Hmm. Man, we ended on a lot of, we started with one question. We ended with a lot of questions, which I kind of think is going to be how it's going to go, because I think each one of these conversations are going to seed more conversations and more good questions. And now we're, as the, you know, as the season unfolds, I think we're going to get into meatier and meatier things because these are the questions that are going to define the businesses that thrive. And they're they're also going to define the technological values that are going to be the most important thing as we rebuild the next version of whatever the economy is. And like, I don't know if I'm hearing enough conversations about these types of things about this like balance this tightrope of having to balance doing good with a system that was built to reward a very specific behavioral sets in terms of like financially and ignore others and is there a way forward that is viable right so okay so this week we talked about is facebook over uh, is sourdough the best thing ever? Yes. Yes. Um, and we also just tackled in, oh, a couple, you know, 20 odd minutes. We tackled everything from uh, tech ethics to social decay to narrative discrepancies and how we interpret the world. So, you know, just like a usual conversation for the two of us, just like a regular <laughs> Monday. Um, I think we should end. I think this is a good place to, to, to hop off and to end. Uh, I hope Everyone has been enjoying these conversations. Please stick around. We are evolving. We will be adding, changing. Uh, just would love to include you all in the conversation. So check us out at Vanderful.com. And you can always email us at podcast at Vanderful.com. If you want to share some thoughts or have some thoughts for future topics, we would love to hear from you and we will see you next week. <laughs>